Well, good afternoon, everybody. This is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, and thanks for joining us for another of our virtual events. And tonight, uh, we're really delighted to have Mariah Fredericks with us. She's going to be discussing her new book, The Lindbergh Nanny, and uh, we have a batch of signed books coming. They're on the way, and if you're interested in one, I will go ahead and put a link in the comments field um, should you wish to purchase one. And also our good friend Susan Elia McNeil has joined us, and she's going to be a special guest host this evening. Um, and uh, let's see if you have yeah if you have questions for either of them, Mariah or Susan, go ahead and put them in the comments field, and Barbara will summon me back on screen towards the end of the hour. So Barbara, over to you. Thank you, Patrick. So nice to meet you, Mariah and Susan. Lovely to see you. We have a parallel going on here because this is our November Historical Fiction Book of the Month. And Susan's book, Mother, Daughter, Trader, Spy, was our book, uh, I think it was September, if I remember right. So here they are, you know, one by... And it's, um, it's really interesting to me how so much of historical mystery at the moment is either World War II based or it's America, um, or or a ton of it is American this year. I'm having, this is not your problem, but mine. I, I'm having a really hard time finding like ancient Rome or medieval or, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that history is sort of focused on the 20th century because when I started the bookstore, there was a raft of historical mystery that was a huge medieval, um, you know, but, but also, um, many of the more ancient civilizations. And for some reason right now, um, that's dried up, but everything goes in cycles. So I'll turn around and it'll probably be like eight books on ancient Rome <laughs> next year, you know, just works out that way. But anyway, Mariah is actually got us in the 1930s when um, the Lindbergh kidnapping occurred in 1932. And, um, and her character here, Betty Gow, is based on an actual character, um, but presumably, and they'll explore this, there's not so much known about Betty Gow that it is not possible to write a novel in the uh, spaces in her life that maybe are not so defined. So I will say, Mariah, before we start, that I edited a book about the Lindbergh kid kidnapping maybe 15 years ago for a Poison Pen Press author, and he had an entirely different take um, on what happened. So when we get to the end of the hour, I will tell you about it because I've often thought that he might have been he might have been right about the motive for it and who did it, which I didn't think has been explored well by anybody else. And I'm not saying that I necessarily believe it, but I thought he made an excellent case for it. So Great. we can talk about that at the end. But meantime, Susan, um, whose Maggie Hope series is indeed World War II, but um, she was inspired to write a different story um, by her last Maggie Hope book, Mother. So, do I have this right? Mother, Daughter, Trader, Spot? Perfect. Excellent. Um, it's set in Los Angeles, and it is a World War II story, but it's a different World War II story. And I learned so much from reading it. Susan's research was very deep and, um, and thoroughly thought provoking for those of us who thought we knew what America was like during the war, and it turns out that we don't, or at least I didn't. So thank you, Susan, for that. Anyway, um, let me turn you over to the Lindbergh Danny and carry on from there. 
Well, first of all, thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Poison Pen. Hello, Mariah. Hello, it's so good to see you. Okay, so disclaimer for people watching, we actually, we're friends in real life. We are New Yorkers. We share the same agent. Um, and we both have teenage sons about the same age. So we have a lot in common as, as well as getting together kind of over wine and cheese on the semi-regular to talk about historic research. Yes. So this is just, I feel like this is just a continuation of like us at, at the, the wine, the wine bar. Totally. totally. Okay. You were so kind and helpful while I wrote this book. Oh, please. I loved hearing about it. And you know, the thing is I was, I am such a huge Jane Prescott fan. And I was surprised when I heard you were doing a standalone. And I mean, I'm so thrilled because it's, fantastic but could you talk a bit about that just as a series author to series author who broke off to do a standalone tell me what that was like for you well um I'm not going to lie and say that it was my brilliant idea to start with you know it's I I love Jane Prescott I thought I was going to remain happily in 1910s New York with my intrepid ladies maid um and the publisher came to me mcmillan and they said you know we'd love you to try a historical standalone mm -hmm. and my first reaction quite frankly was complete panic because i thought i can't live without jane's voice i don't want to leave 1910s new york what are you talking about um i can't leave her in limbo um but so I sort of started frantically swamp because my, my approach is to tell the stories of murders among the rich and famous from the servant's point of view. Uh, so I started frantically swatting in servants to major historical events. So I was like, we could do the waiter on the Titanic. We could do the dim-waved ladies maid with the last Romanovs. We could try the chauffeur with Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And then I realized, oh, right, it's supposed to be a mystery. And there's not a lot of question about what happened in those uh, events. So I was really sort of wrestling and wrestling with, you know, servants and famous people and what events still have questions surrounding them when, of all things, the first scene of the 1974 murder on the Orient Express came into my head. And if you remember how that movie opens, it's uh, the scene, a silent scene of the kidnapping of little Daisy Armstrong. And as the kidnapper takes the child out of the house, it's not the parents that he encounters, it's the servants. And the first person you see is the nanny tied up on the floor. And then mm -hmm. I remember that Christie had uh, been inspired by the Lindbergh kidnapping when she wrote that book. So I thought, hmm, was there an actual Lindbergh nanny? And it turned out that there was. That's amazing, a whole Agatha Christie. You know. <laughs> inspiration there it's amazing yeah yeah and the, and the whole thing reads like a, the, the reality of the case reads like an Agatha Christie well for those who haven't read the wonderful New York Times review and Wall Street Journal review um can you give us the elevator pitch for the Lindbergh nanny 
this is the one book for which I have ever had an effective elevator pitch. And it was America's most famous kidnapping as told from the point of view of one of its prime suspects, the young woman known as the Lindbergh Annie. Excellent. Well, I would love to see that movie. <laughs> oh, you and me both. Do you have, if you could cast it, who would you cast? I would love to see Jesse Buckley as Betty because mm -hmm. I love, because she breaks my heart every single time I see her. And I just saw Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer, and I think he oh. would be phenomenal as Lindbergh. Oh, absolutely. Um, so when you're, you decided to write the Lindbergh Nanny, but where did you start with your research? I mean, it's huge. It's a huge project. Right. Well, I thought at first, I worried I might not have any project because I thought if she's just a footnote in a police report, like, you know, interviewed Nanny about what child was wearing. I was oh, okay. Out of luck. Um, but the first place that I went was Susan Hertog's excellent biography of Anne Morrow Lindbergh, because mm -hmm. I sexistly decided that the mother would probably have more connection. And Hertog was able to interview Betty Gow towards the end of her life. And from that, in, from her book, I got several things. Um, that she met the Lindbergh. She had been in America for a few years. She was a young Scottish woman. She was about 26 years old. Um, she had had kind of a checkered history as a nanny. She didn't seem to stay with any one job very long. And when she met the Lindberghs, you know, she sort of heard through the Scottish domestic uh, networks, they need a nanny, you should go apply. Um, so she did, and they interviewed her in the hallway of Anne, Anne Morrow Lindbergh's family's house in Englewood. And right away, she liked Anne. She thought she was warm and unpretentious and just self-deprecating and lovely. She does not like Charles Lindbergh right off the bat. You know, she's expected to meet this great hero um, of the world, and he's very awkward. He insults her by saying she speaks English well, um, and Anne sort of had to step in and say, Charles does speak English in Scotland. And women rude anyway. Um, so she is very unimpressed by him, and she declared him nobody special. So I thought, okay, that's cool. Like she connects in with the mom. She likes qualities that I like, but she's certainly not overawed uh, by Charles Lindbergh, um, which he spoke in intelligence. Um, the other thing that people said about her is she was completely devoted to the baby. Um, because, you know, when you start researching something like this, you don't know what you have. Is she going to be the heroine of the story? Is she going to be the villain of the story? Is she going to be the unwitting accomplice? of the story. Um, but she spoke with many people over the years about the kidnapping in her later years. So I had a lot to work with there. Um, and I also had um, the full police records of her statement, her interviews oh. with the police. 
the transcript of her uh, testimony at the trial, and I have a few letters home. So I really have a sense of her voice, her personality, um, and she has an amazing arc through this entire event yeah. from the beginning. She's the first, she's the last person to see Charlie alive. She's mm -hmm. the first person to find out he's missing. Um, and, you know, she's just involved at every point in the case. You know, doing research is such an adventure. And I was just wondering if anything, I know we've talked about this, but if, did anything surprise you when you were doing research? What I had had no idea. I mean, I knew something about the Lindbergh kidnapping. You know, we all know mm -hmm. like it traumatized Maurice Sendak, it traumatized Gloria Vanderbilt. We know the sort of broad outline. I had no idea that the police viewed it as an inside job. And then mm -hmm. the staff of both the Lindbergh and Morrow families came under intense suspicion. And they had very good reasons. I, I would agree with them, obviously, um, that it was an inside job because the Hopewell house um, was not the Lindbergh's full-time house. It wasn't finished yet. And they only spent weekends there. And usually by Monday, they were back at Anne's mother's place in Englewood. But the Tuesday that Charlie was kidnapped, Charlie had had a cold and Anne caught the cold. She was pregnant at the time. The weather was hideous. And so she called Betty at Englewood and said, can you please come down? We're, we're gonna stay put, um, come and help me. And that phone call is the first time anyone outside the immediate family knew that they were staying in the remote, unguarded Hopewell house. Um, so you have Betty Gow knows, Violet Sharp, a table maid for the Moros who takes the phone call knows, Septimus Banks, the butler who arranges for the car to drive Betty to Hopewell, he knows. The chauffeur Ellerson knows Betty had a date that night with her boyfriend. She has to call and cancel, so he knows. And Marguerite Jansen, a seamstress for the Moros, who was going to double date with them, she knows. So it's a it's a wide array of suspects. Um, I found Betty just so sort of endearing as well as really fascinating. Um, I was just wondering how you know, how you felt creating her. It seems like you didn't have a whole lot of facts to go on. So how did you balance the fact and the fiction? I didn't have a lot of facts to go. I mean, I had the beats of her story because mm -hmm. she was so fully investigated. Once the kidnapping happened, I knew what she was doing. Prior to that, and of course, during the investigation, they uncovered a lot of her past. So they, got, they put the wrong construction on it, but I did have that information. The first thing that I was completely insane, like I had to know was she was one of six children. Mm -hmm. And one newspaper reports that her mother said, Betty is the eldest of my six children. And another newspaper said, Betty is the youngest of my six children. And I thought, I can't start this woman's story until I know where she is in the birth 
order. It, it explains everything. So Mark Baldini, who is the um, archivist at the New York, New Jersey State Police Museum, was kind enough to answer like 50 million meaningless questions from me. That was the one he could not answer. Um, but I found it in a police interview where she talks about her brother being older. You know, I said, yes, she's the youngest. I now have her entire psyche and backstory filled in. <laughs> well, kind of. I mean, you know. It says a um, lot. <laughs> it tells you a lot. Um, what, how do you feel about fictionalizing a real life flesh and blood person? And I, we've talked about this a little, but we do, we go about it in very different ways. We, we, we've talked about it a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. This, it was the first book I've ever done where it was somebody else's actual story. And I actually did a, a piece recently for Crime Reads about sort of the predatory nature about writing a true crime novel because. Mm. Yes, I read that. Um, you know, I think it's good that we've become more sensitive and aware about you're telling somebody else's pain and that has to be treated with a certain amount of respect. I don't know if Betty would be thrilled to have a novel written about her. Um, you know, she, I, I found this fabulous quote um, after, of course, I had turned in the book when she returned to Scotland um, she was besieged by the British press and they said, Betty, Betty, we've heard that Hollywood is calling you. Have you been called by Hollywood? And she said, I certainly have. And their authors have been so degrading, no self-respecting woman and certainly no self-respecting Scottish woman would entertain, you know, working with them. Wow. So, yeah. So she had boundaries, <laughs> um, not surprisingly, but she comes off very positively in the novel, and I, I think she wouldn't mind it. Other characters are obviously much more difficult. The difficulty with Anne Moral Lindbergh mm -hmm. is she's left such a beautiful record of her own thoughts and feelings during this time in her diaries and her letters. You have to be very conscious of not plagiarizing, basically, because she expresses what she's feeling so well um and then of course there's charles Lindbergh. Mm -hmm. um, and i think the choices that i made about his depiction were the toughest decisions i had to make with this book he's a difficult character um you know despite the enormous error of heroism he actually was a, a very difficult person i had a, a classmate who married his younger son at Stanford. They were both um, really? both there. So I kind of knew them that way. But, um, you know, the end of his life, his second family, you know, all the strange things that, um, and of course his, you know, support of fascism and, you know, Nazi term and all the rest of it. Uh, he's, a, he's a complex American hero. And I thought that you did a good job, you know, um, dealing with, with who he was. I might as well interject what, what this other story, which I find really fascinating. And, and since you've done some research, you could speak to it, is that Anne Mara Lindbergh had, a, had a, a family of real characters. And one of her brothers 
I think, was addicted to jokes and to, I can't remember if he was also a gambler, but he was kind of a, a reckless guy. And the theory of the other book that I remember editing was that in point of fact, because Charles was not much loved and so forth, that actually the kidnapping was intended to be a kind of a, I don't wanna say a joke, but it was intended to be something of a prank. And Anne's brother, in fact, was responsible for it. And tragically, the baby died in this, in the, you know, in what happened. And then there was no, no going back to try to explain, you know, that it hadn't actually been a kidnapping for money, but it was more of a of an inside family. Um, I don't know what the right word is exactly. I don't want to say joke or prank and all, but it was something, you know, that that was really within the family circle. And then it spiraled out and, you know, people got caught up in it. Betty got caught up in it. You know, um, Hauptmann got caught up in it. It led, in fact, at the end of 1932 to the federal kidnapping law, uh, which is a, a major piece of legislation. And I don't know, Susan, if I ever told you this, but I was reminded of it because um, the late Sue Grafton and I spent a lot of time together. And at one point, we were talking about how her novels were named. And she, when she was writing K, K was for kidnapping. And she wrote away and she said she got to like page 130 or 160 or something with Kinsey working a kidnapping case until it dawned upon her that Kinsey couldn't actually do that because kidnapping is a federal crime. And she had to throw it all away and change it to chaos for killer and start over again. Oh no. And, you know, which I, I've been, I've always loved that. It, it's entirely Sue to have actually told that story on herself. But um, the, the Lindbergh kidnapping, however, however it was conceived and however it happened made some very profound changes to, um, you know, to how kidnapping is treated and how it is investigated now. So it's a, it's a major landmark in, um, in both law and in true crime annals. And it never really has been satisfactorily completely solved, has it? Well, I, I mean, oops, no, go, I was just gonna ask you, Mariah, um, who, and not to, give any spoilers in the book, because I think you handle this so deftly, but just you as a human being, as a researcher, as a novelist, like, did you come away with any strong feelings about who done it? I, the question of the novel, it, yeah, I mean, I, I identify the inside person, um, but as for the person who was behind the Lindbergh kidnapping, I do, and I know this is a controversial theory, but I do believe that Bruno Richard Hauptmann was guilty. And the reason that I believe that Bruno Richard Hauptmann was guilty was that the ransom money was a specific kind of um, bill. It was gold bills that had a large yellow uh, marking on it when mm -hmm. um, they were going out of circulation. And they, wrote down all the numbers of the bills, they circulated them through the tri-state area, and he had 13,000 of these bills in, his, in a shed in his backyard. And when they initially caught him, he said, oh, I've got only a few of these. Well, he had way more than a few. Then he said, well, this guy Isidore Fish 
um, left it to me and then he split for Germany. And now, unfortunately, he's dead. Um, so, okay, so you think, well, that's a possibility. Maybe it was a gang situation and he took some of the money and Houtman took some of the money. Except that Isidore Fish died completely broke and owed a lot of people money. And people were like, wow, if he was sitting on tens of thousands of uh, ransom dollars, I sure never knew it. Um, to me, the, the ransom notes themselves do indicate a somebody who speaks with German cadence and German intonation. Um, let's see, he had a criminal record in Germany, which includes second story burglary with a ladder. Um, the wood from the ladder matches the grain. One of the um, rails matches the grain of a beam cut from his attic. Um, and he had the Lindbergh liaison, Dr. Condon's name and phone number written in his closet. Now that's one of the points that's often disputed because a reporter said, oh yeah, I wrote that there. Um, but when they asked Houtman about it, he said, oh, I guess I was a little bit interested in the case and I just kind of jotted it down. Right. So to me, it seems like there's a wealth of evidence, but because the investigation was really expansive, but it was somewhat shoddy forensically, right? They didn't secure the crime scene. Um, I believe that the interrogation of Houtman broke a few rules, um, mm -hmm. that he may have been coerced into doing the handwriting sample a certain way. And Lindbergh, even then, even pre-Nazi sympathies and anti-intervention, the press really didn't like him because he hated them so much. So I think from the very beginning, there was this question of um, the police are under such pressure to find somebody, they just framed somebody. Um, you know, was Lindbergh involved? I mean, that goes way back. So, absolutely. I, I probably misspoke when I said it hasn't really been solved. I think I should have said there is still debate um, okay. or some some doubt. Um, I'd have to go back and reread the other book, but I think there was a um, a connection somehow between Houtman and and Anne's family or some way that, you know, it was possible that he was kind of an agent, but not, you know, the question is who was really behind it was, was Houtman, you know, smart enough or motivated enough or whatever it was to have done it entirely on his own. I don't know. I mean, you've obviously done all the research and I'm just speculating from what I can recall, but it's like Lizzie Borden in a way. I mean, do we really think Lizzie Borden didn't kill her parents, but, you know, can we actually prove it? Um, there are very unsatisfactory, you know, um, crimes that have happened where there's just enough room for doubt that people can speculate. Oh. Sort of like the elections, you know, but, but more, <laughs> I mean, here we are in Arizona where Carrie Lake has yet to concede and he shows fomenting some kind of new conspiracy theory. And it's amazing how people take to, you know, to, to theories that are not, even rooted in fact. Well, a good story is a good story. It has real 
power and the appeal. Um, my, my feeling about, I never believed that secrets are kept for long. And I felt like if somebody from the Lindbergh family were working with Hauptman, which is the only way I could ever see that happening, I can't believe he would have kept silent. And his wife never, it's not like they were paying off the wife, but she was in financial difficulties. Um, so. But your story is about Betty. I mean, the kidnapping is, you know, the background to it, but your real focus in here is, is Betty Gow and the consequences of being caught up in something like that. You know, I mean, they're huge, aren't they? Even for people who, I mean, she's not on the periphery, certainly, but any major thing like that can catch up and work the lives of any number of people, some of whom probably really are on the periphery. So that's what that's what really interested you, wasn't it? Was Betty herself and her story and yeah, the her I mean, I'm fascinated by caregivers um, to begin with, because I think that their role in raising children is often so undervalued, overlooked. And you know, for the last year of Charlie's life, she was really his primary caregiver. You know, the Limbers were away for months at a time. Um, I think he said Betty before he said mommy. Um, and you know, Anne kind of went, oop. Um, and they, when they found the baby's body, they asked her to identify the remains because obviously you can't ask the mother, but she was shattered. I mean, it was, it was an absolutely wrenching, traumatic experience. And I think she found, she found her way through, but this crime impacted so many lives. I mean, one of, one of the servants committed suicide. Another had to be institutionalized. Uh, a third just disappeared. Another died young. Um, and I think, um, you know, Susan, you were asking what, what, I discovered that surprised me was sort of the ripple effect of how right. many lives were affected here. Right. Just um, one of the through lines I see going through your books is the sort of uh, upstairs, downstairs look at women and power. And I was just wondering if you wanted to talk about that in relationship to Betty and Anne. Ah, yes. Because I, I really loved how you dealt with the two of them. Um, they were in some ways mirrors for each other. And I really, I really loved that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was such an interesting dynamic because you have a young woman who left school at 14 is obviously not a person of privilege and sort of insecure employment and versus a woman her father was a senator he was a sex of high school businessman um she had enormous wealth but she also had a mother who was deeply invested in women's education and she raised her daughters um to be highly intelligent knowledgeable human beings at one point uh Anne rebelled and said i want to go to vassar college and she's like absolutely not you will be going to smith um, we go to Smith. Um, so she had every advantage, and yet Anne was also she when one of the first things she said to Susan Hertog was, I was a rebel. 
Um, and I think that whatever we say about Charles Lindbergh, he liberated her from a life she didn't necessarily want. There's a moment in the book where somebody is um, talking to Anne and they're holding on to her wrist and they're very excited. And this is true, he really did this. He takes the person's hand and he slid it off Anne's arm. And it's, to me, that's like the perfect metaphor for controlling, but also liberation, but also controlling. Um, and Betty is, I mean, she's not forced to live in this house, but she has to live in this house where she has one identity, which is to serve this family. You know, in the beginning of the book, a friend says, well, they'll want to meet you and get to know you. And she thinks, no, they don't. They have no interest in knowing me. They don't want to know what I feel or I think. Like, they want me to be their nanny and to exist for them. And I always think about what it's like to be a young person in someone else's house and try to have any kind of private life or any kind of private thoughts. You know, a lot of the young women in service really wanted to get married. Betty really wanted to get married. And I don't think it was like some dream of Prince Charming. It was just like, I want a house of my own. Mm -hmm. I want space. I don't want to have to work this kind of like really hard life um, where I just have no privacy. Absolutely. Um, well, you and I are in that really weird club, like no writer really wants to be a part of, but it's like the covert, the COVID writing club. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I do feel like we ended up really bonded yeah. on Twitter. Um, we all found each other, our tribe on Twitter during COVID. And this is a COVID novel, right? You wrote this during COVID. And I was just wondering if that had any effect, do you think, on, on the writing? It absolutely, in, in ways I never could. I mean, first of all, I was so grateful to have a project to write during mm -hmm. COVID yeah. because as, as painful as this story is in parts, I was like, I want something to focus on that has nothing to do with what's happening in the world right now. Um, obviously, it affected me enormously in terms of research mm -hmm. um, because all the police records were at the New Jersey State Police Museum. And I thought, oh, they'll be open in a few weeks. Remember when we all thought everything would oh, open in yeah. a few weeks? Well, no. And I was, and there's so many secondary sources that I could make do, but this lovely man, Doug Harrell, that I had met at a Mystery Writers of America meeting, joined Mystery Writers of America and Sisters in Crime, saw the book announcement in Publishers Lunch. And he said, hey, I have all the digital files for the police records from 1932. You like want those? Okay, yes, yes, yes I do. <laughs> um, and he also gave me Mark Falzini's number. And that was just, I mean, it was such an act of unbelievable writerly generosity. Because of course he's doing his own book on Lindbergh. Um, and that really saved my butt because they never opened during the time of me writing this novel. The other 
way the movie affected the writing of the novel was it influenced my perspective on Lindbergh. And I want to be careful about how I say this. Mm-hmm. Because when I started the book, I had no real opinion one way or the other about Lindbergh. It was like, flying across the Atlantic is not an act that particularly thrills me. So like, I'm like, oh, is that, you know, tall blonde guy standing by a plane? Great, whatever. There was the kidnapping. Then there's, you know, the Des Moines speech and the Nazi, you know, hey, America should kind of join with them because we're all white Europeans and, you know, we may have to fight off those black and brown and yellow people and don't let the Jews tell you different. And uh, yeah, well, that's about what I would expect from a tall Aryan, you know, Superman. And, but when I was writing during COVID, And when I was reading the A. Scott Ferg book, and I saw some of his perspective came from a critique of America and a view of America, which he expresses in the book as a selfish, chaotic, short-term thinking, profit-oriented people that are incapable of acting in a spirit of sacrifice or for the greater good. And that was disturbingly resonant for me. Mm, Yeah. And at the same time, I also felt like, you know, when no one could get N95 masks, I thought, I don't care what the rules are. I don't care what the laws are. I, you know, I want some strong man to come in here and tell American businesses, you are doing nothing but producing N95 masks. So... I don't know, he, it, it got under my skin in a very disturbing way. And I think the isolation of COVID and sort of the misery that we all felt about ourselves as a country at that time, um, it did work its way into the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a more cheerful question, yes. um, which, <laughs> which is, what are you working on now and what can we expect next from you? I just turned in uh, the new novel. It's also a standalone and it's based on a true crime and this true crime, nobody has heard of. So I took a lot more liberties with this one. And it is the murder of David Graham Phillips. Has anybody heard of David Graham Phillips? Right. This is why I could take so many liberties with it, because nobody's heard of it. He was a journalist and a writer. And as a novelist, he had a lot to say about the American woman. He felt that we were dreadfully spoiled and we were interested in culture and baggy passions and that we were not good wives. We were only interested in advancing our fortune in society and driving around in automobiles. And in 1911, on January 24th, he was walking to the Princeton Club and somebody put six bullets into him. And the person who is going to be solving this mystery is Edith Wharton. Is who? Edith Wharton. Oh, wow. Who was in New York within a few months of that. And she was in a total life crisis. um, And she had summoned her lover, her oldest friend, 
and Henry James to the Belmont Hotel to demand, should I leave America? Should I leave my publisher? And should I leave my husband? So it, I felt like these two writers had to be in conversation with one another. It sounds amazing. Was really I cannot wait to read this. <laughs> Thank you. Susan, what are you working on? I am working on the next Maggie Hope novel, actually. I get to go back to Maggie, which has been really fun. And um, I just got back from a writing retreat. I did say, take some time off after Mother Daughter Trader Spy, but I'm back to work now. How much time? You can wait a week off. I feel like... I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I, I've been sort of working a little bit for a while, but like sort of taking more time off. It just, um, again, like with the COVID and the subject matter, um, I've, I've found it very challenging and I've needed some time to kind of regroup and regain like the sense of fun about it all. But the nice thing is this Maggie novel is, um, it's a lot more um, about spies. So we have Kim Philby, we have Coco Chanel, who's a Nazi spy. And there's just lots of intrigue. And I think it's just a, less of like the sort of hate crimes and domestic terrorism kind of things that I've been talking about lately. And just more of like the fun spy hijinks rooted in reality, but still, you know, kind of fun. So I'm, I'm really into that. And a little bit of glamour, after all, if it's a little bit of glamour, and we get to go to Madrid, so Ooh. scenes in scenes in Paris, Berlin, but a lot in Madrid, which is where this mission really happened with Coco Chanel. So that should be wonderful. Yeah, so I want to go back to the nanny for a minute because Mariah, when you were, I've always found the role of a nanny, which I have more familiar with in the British sense. It's a very strange because there's a lot of intimacy involved in caring for a child and caring for someone else's child. And yet the nanny's not really, while often in loco parentis, almost entirely um, in British households, oftentimes where the parents are like never there, is not part of the family and in fact can be dismissed at will. So, you know, there's no, there's no job security there most of the time. Um, yeah. I mean, some of them stayed forever and raised, you know, multiple children and all, but nonetheless, their jobs were dependent upon, you know, um, the parents keeping them, keeping them employed. Um, and some of them had great relationships with the children, but do you remember the scandal when Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret's nanny published, you know, um, a book about it? And, you know, it was a tremendous thing because the nanny, you know, kind of broke that whole tradition of being inside the family and keeping it all private, but yet the nanny never is part of the family. It's a very strange, it's, you know, if you're the butler or if you're the maid, you know, you're not expected to have that intimate relationship with, you know, with the parents and the child. So I've always thought the nanny was a really strange position to be in, in, you know, would be very uncomfortable. Um, I thought you did well with Betty, but what did you feel after you'd researched what it was like for her? Well, the Limbers were not a normal family, which she was warned about in the beginning. They traveled extensively. And in her time there, they took like a four month tour um, 
through Japan to their route. So, and she was effectively left alone with Charlie for two, like over two months. Um, and she felt abandoned by the family. They hadn't left her money. Um, he, he grew out of his clothes. Um, so she ended up spending her own money on new clothes for him because she was very worried that when she brought him back, they would say, what have you done to our child? Um, and they were, they were very focused on, they, they subscribed to a child rearing method where you ruin the child by loving it too much and hovering too much. And she was instructed not to cuddle him and not to, you know, coddle him. And at one point, you know, Lindbergh, you know, puts him out in the yard in a pen and for hours he cries and Betty couldn't take it. And she went to Anne and she said, I, I have to go to him. This is, I, this is too hard. And Anne said, Betty, there's nothing we can do. And I don't know whether she meant there's nothing we can do because Colonel Lindbergh won't allow it or because method didn't allow it. And I think Betty seems to have felt very warmly towards Anne. It was less clear to me how Anne felt about Betty. Um, she, saw, he, she talks about her a little more like she's a servant. Like, oh, she's capable. I know she'll call the doctor. Poor thing, she's gone through such a difficult time with the police. And at the end of the book, I, you know, there's there's a real betrayal, and that really happened. Um, and as I, you know, Lindbergh was very convinced that nobody on the staff was guilty. I don't know that Anne felt so convinced or so forgiving, which I can't blame her. I mean, she went through complete hell. So she went on to have more children. Yes. Did she? Did she again hire a nanny? Um, Betty cared briefly for their second son, John, and I never found out what the discussion was about why it was such a short time. I think it was just too painful and she ended up going back to Scotland. Um, my sense is, no, they did. I remember they did hire another nanny because mm -hmm. Lindbergh made a crack about, you know, well, she's not nearly quite as attractive as our last one. Um, oh, good God. <laughs> which was like, it was the only reference I could find to like his opinion of Betty whatsoever. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I just wondered, you know, if after that whole experience, they might've changed their views on child raising or who was going to do it. I'm sure that they vetted the next person. I mean, they, they just hired people going on gut. There was no background check. Um, a lot of people in the Morrow staff, God bless them, were messes. They had all sorts of issues. Um, because, you know, as I say, it's hard living in somebody else's house. Um, but I think at a certain point, Anne rebelled and said he wanted her to not, to not be a typical mom and housewife. He re I mean, one of his good points, he really encourages her to write. He's like, don't let anything get in the way of your writing. 
except, of course, when I want you to come flying with me. And I think at a certain point, she said, I can't keep, I don't want to keep up with you. I don't want to keep doing this. I want to be a full-time mom to our children. Uh, well, it was certainly a complicated family. And, you know, a tragedy like that will warp a family forever. Um, you don't really know how their lives would have gone if Charlie hadn't been kidnapped and, and hadn't died. And, you know, whether it would have been a different life for both of them. But, you know, wonderful job imagining it. Um, and, um, and you must have liked that or you wouldn't have written a new book with some, <laughs> some similar. <laughs> so there we are. Susan, are you thinking about going to do another standalone, having gotten a taste of it? I would love to do another standalone, so we shall see. But there are still plenty of Maggies left, so. Well, there are, yeah. And I, I mean, I love Maggie. I'm not trying to encourage you, but I just- No, I actually, I do have an idea. It's just, um, I'm trying to work on the, the, the one, I try to work on the novel that's in front of me. Right. The other one's like, just, it's just so much easier to think about a different novel. No, I, I agree. I had an interesting discussion with Ellie Griffiths yesterday, who's written like 15 books in her Ruth Galloway series, and has now written a third book, which is sort of a standalone, but has a character she's bringing forward. And the question is, does she want to stop that or go on? You know, so it's kind of like, you know, writing a series versus writing different stories that happen to different people. And I don't see any reason why you can't mix them up. If your if your mind will work that way, and also if your publisher will accommodate that, yes. but and I th I think it's good for series if authors take breaks from it to do other things. But but then I'm not an author, nor am I a publisher anymore, so <laughs> I don't even get to vote. From a bookseller's point of view, though, isn't it good because it gives like people an entree into the writer? Because I remember someone at some bookstore said it's so good you did a standalone because there are so many Maggies and it can be intimidating. So this is good. You can just pick this one up and go. You don't have to like read all these books and books and books. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I do remember discussing this whole concept with Michael Conley who wrote four Harry Bosch books and then deliberately decided to write a different thing, you know, with Jack and, and the poet. Um, and it was in part for the reason that you suggest is that you know maybe a different story would bring more people into his fold, and then they more people would read Harry Bosch. Not that Harry, you know, was in trouble or anything, but just as a. And also, I think that he had completed a cycle within Harry's life, and he wanted to take a break from it and do something different. But you know, you both know writers are all different. You know, I mean, what works for one of you doesn't necessarily work for another. And then there, you know, there are trends in publishing too. Right now, there is sort of a trend to standalones. And then, but I can remember in the 90s, it was all about series. It was all about series all the time. So, you know, that probably has something to do with how much freedom that you have. It's interesting that your publisher, uh, Mariah, actually asked you to do something different. You know, that's, that's a good thing. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the thinking was similar in terms of let's get fresh eyes on the work of Mariah Fredericks. Um, but the, the eras are so different. And the, I mean, Betty is a, Lindbergh is a tougher story than Jane, but Edith, Edith is more in the, it's the same era. It's, it's got that balance of warmth and humor and 
Um, so I'll be very, but I've certainly gotten far more early interest for the Lindbergh Nanny than you know I was for the series. So they were absolutely right in uh, asking me to make that change. Okay. Well, I congratulate both of you, you know, for being gutsy and doing something different. And then both of you brought it up superbly well. So let's call Patrick up and see if we have any comments from potential readers or actual readers, as the case may be, or Patrick himself. Hi there. Fascinating conversation. Um, let's see here. There are a number of people watching. Um, Let's see here. Okay, uh, Mariah, you've actually already answered this partially, but uh, Chris would like to know, she says, I'm curious of where Mariah did her research for the novel. Did the Lindbergh family have any documents in a library somewhere? Ah, um, they the access to the private Lindbergh papers, I think is granted by the estate, but there's the huge A. Scott Berg biography of Woodberg. There is the Candace Fleming um, biography that sort of views him more through the lens of recent events. Uh, there's the Hertog biography. Um, there's all, there's their diaries. There's their letters. Um, he wrote a memoir, which I didn't read because I don't think he's the most self-examining person. Um, but um, behind me is a stack of um, just some of the books um, on the crime that I read. Um, so there is no shortage of material. And then, as I say, I had the uh, police records and the trial transcripts in the newspaper. What was it like going through the trial transcripts? How, how big was that, by the way? Massive? Betty's? Um, trial testimony cover like it was pages and pages i mean you can't believe newspapers ever gave that much coverage um to an event and that much space but the wonderful thing about the trial was i was so stuck for a happy ending for this woman i had just put her through hell for like you know 220 pages and she was a nervous wreck at the trial. A lot of people thought she was guilty. The prosecutor really went after her. And she came out triumphant. And all the colonists uh, came out on her side. And there's actually a moment in the trial where the, the prosecutor kind of sneers at her, or the defense attorney, excuse me, the defense attorney sneers at her, well, you're a very bright young woman, aren't you, Miss Gal? And she says right away, yes, I am. And the entire courtroom burst into applause because they were so thrilled she had finally fought back. Um, so the trial transcript gave me my happy ending. Maybe you can both, we have, I'm sure we have a couple of uh, aspiring writers uh, watching. Um, can you both kind of speak a little bit to your to your process? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you get the pages done every day? Do you have, is there a method to your madness? Susan, you want to start? Well, um, <laughs> Mariah's mocked me. Mariah's seen my process and she's seen my, my now infamous whiteboard, which she, it's just full of like these scribbles and lines and like circled names and how they connect to each other. And she said it was like, 
Carrie, uh, I forgot her last name, but in Homeland, you know, the woman who's like slightly insane, but can put things together. So um, I, I kind of start with that. And then I do really try to write every single morning. So at least. Mariah. I'm also a morning person. And what I try and do is I write as little as possible to stave off anxiety so i commit in the beginning i commit to about two pages one finding the voice and figuring out the pace um and then the afternoon i sort of outline and do research and then when i have about a hundred pages if i've made it to that point i'll add two pages of rewrites in the afternoon um, and that usually shakes out to about a 300 page novel a year so, and do you do you write? You don't write out a whole first draft, or you do, and then go back and it, that's a question that most of the time people want to know. Do you write the entire first draft and then go back and edit it, or do you edit as you go? I edit as I go because I find that often I haven't. I fall apart around the middle section because I haven't made the important choice, the difficult choices in the early. Part, and I'm like, ah, I gotta go back and make those choices. Like, I mean, the energy just kind of dies. So I don't think I could make it all the way to the end. You kind of write yourself into a corner and have to extricate yourself and redirect course. It's more like the energy bursts to get you to the next big thing aren't there, like the detective has lost her way, is just not caring. I mean, the great thing about the Lindbergh Nanny was the plot was decided for me. All the big beats were, were already in place. Right. But when I'm making it up, I the major challenge is keeping the detective simultaneously on completely the wrong path for a lot of the novel and yet look, not looking like a total idiot. How about you, Susan? What what do you do you edit as you go? I edit as I go, just because I I actually just it's a joke in our family. Um, I leave things for future Susan, so present Susan will be will like leave little things like okay, you know, something fun here, like something really twisty there, and like later Susan has to go back and and do something and I then I hate I hate past Susan when I do that but I feel like I need to give myself that time <laughs> just sort of like just get the very basics up and then like kind of circle back so there you go it's always you know every writer has his or her own process and it doesn't really translate to other writers you know so I, this question comes up almost every time we do something, and um, and the answers are always different. You know, whatever Barbara, works for you. What What do you think, Barbara? I mean, we've heard, as she said, we've heard so many different, uh, you know, different things, different stories. What do you think is the most eccentric writing <laughs> routine that we've heard? I mean, could it be Diana's? Yeah, I was going to say handsome <laughs> <with> Diana. <laughs> Diana um, Yep, she has a, actually, Aaron Elkins, years and years ago, I would have said, maybe his is even the most eccentric. Aaron, Aaron would start with a little kernel, and his story developed a circle around it. It was like a pearl, 
you know, there'd be a grain of sand in the oyster and then the oyster would keep putting layers and layers around it. So he would start with a central point and then it was just kind of, and I was never clear how, how, how he knew how far to go backward or forward. If, I mean, how does he know it's the middle was the part I used to be baffled by kind of, but that worked for him. Diana's process is that she writes scenes whenever they occur to her and they don't have any relation to each other. And then she kind of just like, you know, there they all are. And what takes her forever is she has to write the connective tissue. And that's why the books are so long. Right. We've, we've had that, you know, conversation, but that because she started writing in little things that she posted on, I don't even remember, what was the name of that listserv? There was a, some kind of a listserv way back. Yeah. Um, CompuServe or something and, so. and she would stick up little scenes, you know, and people would like them. And so she got used to that hmm. again. You know, I think a lot of it is just what worked for you and especially what worked for you the first time. I mean, there's a certain amount of suspicion in there, isn't there? Or superstition. I mean, if it worked this time, then maybe I, it'll keep working and I can do it again. Um, may, may decide how some writers um, process those. Um, if you're writing a super long novel over a long period of time, I think that her process becomes really difficult in order to try to remember all the different stuff, but she always pulls it together. So, yeah, who are we to criticize? No. <laughs> but I wouldn't, I don't recommend it as a, as a way for a new writer, perhaps to and she works from like, you know, midnight to four in the morning and then sleeps in little segments and. Well, you know, everybody has different, um, different rhythms and they change yeah. over time. I used to be a night person and now I live with people who are up with the dawn, you know, and puppies and all. And I've had to learn to adjust and I can hardly believe it. Sometimes I'm falling asleep at 930 at night. They used to be when I actually started working. Yeah. So, you know, life, life changes, you know. Um, all those those rhythms for you, depending on any number of things. Yeah. So, you know, what can I say? We digress yet again. We did. We did digress. You did it on purpose. I think I might have. Um, okay, one last question um, that just came in. Uh, actually, two. Do you read what you wrote the day before, and then do you start the next day's writing, or do you just pick up? And then also, uh, do you write in order from start to finish, kind of what we were just saying, or do you write different chapters out of order? I do not go back and reread the day after because I find that things really have to rest um, for a while and it's better for me if I come back fresh and then usually what needs fixing or the inadequacies or what's really working is much clearer. Um, and the sec, do I write chapter? Well, when it came, if I get inspired by a scene, I'll be like, ooh, I can use my afternoon free time to write that scene. But sometimes if you just love a scene and you love a moment, sometimes it's great and it's a highlight of the book and sometimes you have to cut it later for pace. And you love it so much that it's hard to cut it. So um, I don't indulge in that too often. Um, I like to write, but um, 
I don't look at what I did the day before. I sort of just go and and start start fresh in the morning. Um, and then sometimes I get really focused on a certain plot line. So for instance, with the new novel, I've got Coco Chanel sort of going from Paris to Berlin to Spain. And um, I'm, I'm sort of dropping everything else to follow her story because it has momentum and it has energy, like uh, Mariah was saying. And I'm really into it and it, it helps me because I'm not switching, you know, among tons and tons and tons of characters. So also, I think my light went out, but. Yeah, you went <laughs> dark on this room. Yeah, sorry. It was very dramatic. I liked it. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can't one... get it back on. Well, all right. Well, you know what I look like, so. We do. We, do we have time for one more question? Because I, I kind of neglected YouTube and there's a question that has come in. Um, and actually, although this is specific towards you, uh, Mariah, I think it applies to Susan as well. Um, when you were working on Lindbergh, how did you decide when it was okay to change something versus um, when you felt like you needed to stick to the historical record? Um, because it's such a well-known case, I try, and I knew that like there are like legions of gifted armchair scholars on this. Uh, case, I felt like I had to stick to the facts pretty carefully. And also because, as I say, this was, I mean, one of the Lindbergh children has said, you know, this was a real family. This was a real loss. So, and it was dramatic enough. The story is incredible enough that, that um, obviously, I, I diverged from reality in the background of one of the characters. Um, and I obviously accused somebody of being the inside person. And in fact, you know, there were nearly 35 servants. Some people have been lost to history. We have no idea what they overheard or what they said. So, you know, I will concede that that is an invention based on solid hypothetical. Um, but I really tried not to invent too much because I really didn't have to. It's an extraordinary story. It is. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. I, I was so engrossed in the reply. Um, you know, with Maggie, it's a little more fun. I have more freedom because she's totally fictional right. and her friends are fictional and you know, I get to play a little fast and loose. What I do like to do, though, is always in the end notes. Um, I, I give quite specific and um, detailed end notes about my research and really delineate what was fact and what was fiction. Um, with Mother, Daughter, Trader, Spy, those were real women based on real women. And I did feel um, obligated to sort of, you know, stick more closely to their stories and honor their real stories. And again, it was just, everything is in the end notes. So I always feel like people can go there and find out what was real, what's not real, do their own research, you know. All right, well, Maggie's fictional, but many of the other characters in your stories with her are not, like Coco yeah. Chanel or Winston Churchill or whatever. So you probably have to try to keep those relatively accurate, even if Maggie- Those are does. accurate. The, the only, I, there were a few people, um, in the British SOE, that was like the the spy um, the spy organization, um, where I did change names because there are things about the real people that are so controversial, and that are still being questioned. 
And I didn't want to put that on a real person or have their relatives read it. Or so I changed, you know, names, details, gender, you name it. You wouldn't really necessarily know who it was. So I thought I could get away with that because I, I think I know. But the thing is, I don't really. And I don't think we'll ever really know. So. Oh, that's true. But I think fiction can sometimes illuminate things more, more closely than, you know, journalism and nonfiction especially yeah. when you're when you've got perspective on it um but you know that's just depends sometimes i think novelists have a particularly penetrating ability to um extract truth from what might be a, a lot of unknowns so we'll see then then there's shakespeare who wrote everything from the winner's point of view <laughs> and yet he was actually right about richard iii being a hunchback you know because we found out when they dug him up in the parking lot so who knows you know there we are makes it fascinating thank you very much both of you for spending an hour with us let me say that our autographed copies of the Lindbergh nanny will be in and we don't have a lot of extras because most of them are going to our historical fiction book of the month club but we do have some. So um, I think it's a story well worth reading for many reasons. Part of it is that I think it's some of our history, and as I said earlier, inspires some of our law and law enforcement that many of you may not be familiar with. So, you know, you can have a great story and you could also learn something, which I think is a real benefit of crime fiction is that lots of the time you get to do both. In fact, one hopes that that is often true. Anyway, happy Thanksgiving to both of you and the same to all of you watching. Good night, everybody. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.